Let me tell you a story, podcast number 39. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, never mind it is a how truth long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. This podcast is brought to you by the Ides of March. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. What, you ask, does the Ides of March have to do with this podcast? Well, actually, just the date. That's all. We're recording on March 15th, a date made famous by Shakespeare. Here's Steve to tell you the history behind the Ides of March. This is from the Phrase Finder, or phrases.org.uk. Beware the Ides of March. It's from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, 1601. Beware the Ides of March is the soothsayer's message to Julius Caesar, warning of his death. The Ides of March didn't signify anything special in itself. This was just the usual way of saying March 15th. The notion of the Ides being a dangerous date was purely an invention of Shakespeare's. Each month has an Ides, often the 15th, and this date wasn't significant in being associated with death prior to 1601. Months of the Roman calendar were arranged around three named days, the Calends, the Nones, and the Ides, and these were reference points from which the other unnamed days were calculated. Calends is the first day of the month. Nones, that's the seventh day in March, May, July, and October, the fifth in the other months. And Ides, the 15th day in March, May, July, and October, the 13th in the other months. Well, I'm glad our calendar is much simpler. At least I think it is. In our last podcast, we did a quiz for the first time, and we thought that was fun. I hope you did too, because we have another question for you to ponder. Which sentence of the three I'll read come from one of Charles Dickens' novels? Is it, Something or other lay in wait for him, amid the twists and the turns of the months and the years, like a crouching beast in the jungle? Or is it, It was one of those March days when the sun shines hot and the wind blows cold, when it is summer in the light and winter in the shade. Or, he could not, I reflected, be so weak as not to see that the most intricate and remote recess of his hotel would be as open as his commonest closets to the eyes, to the probes, to the gimlets, and to the microscopes of the prefect. Be thinking about that, and we'll let you know near the end of the podcast. Here's another oldie. It's by it's called The Nice People by Henry Kyler Bunner. It was published in 1890. They certainly are nice people. 
I assented to my wife's observation, using the colloquial phrase with a consciousness that it was anything but nice English. And I'll bet that their three children are better brought up than most of Two children, corrected my wife. Three, he told me. My dear, she said, there were two. He said three. You've simply forgotten. I'm sure, she told me, they had only two, a boy and a girl. Well, I didn't enter into particulars. No, dear, and you couldn't have understood him. Two children. All right, I said. But I did not think it was all right. As a nearsighted man learns by enforced observation to recognize persons at a distance when the face is not visible to the normal eye, so the man with a bad memory learns, almost unconsciously, to listen carefully and report accurately. My memory is bad, but I had not had time to forget that Mr. Brewster Breed had told me that afternoon that he had three children, at present left in the care of his mother-in-law, while he and Mrs. Breed took their summer vacation. Two children, repeated my wife, and they are staying with his Aunt Jenny. He told me with his mother-in-law, I put in. My wife looked at me with a serious expression. Men may not remember much of what they are told about children, but any man knows the difference between an aunt and a mother-in-law. But don't you think they're nice people? asked my wife. Oh, certainly, I replied. Only they seem to be a little mixed up about their children. That isn't a nice thing to say, returned my wife. I could not deny it. And yet the next morning, when the breeds came down and seated themselves opposite us at the table, beaming and smiling in their natural, pleasant, well-bred fashion, I knew to a social certainty that they were nice people. He was a fine-looking fellow in his neat tennis flannels, slim, graceful, twenty-eight or thirty years old, with a Frenchy pointed beard. She was nice in all her pretty clothes, and she herself was pretty with that type of prettiness which outwears most other types, the prettiness that lies in a rounded figure, a dusky skin, plump, rosy cheeks, white teeth, and black eyes. She might have been twenty-five. You guessed that she was prettier than she was at twenty, and that she would be prettier still at forty. And nice people were all we wanted to make us happy in Mr. Jacobus's summer boarding house on top of Orange Mountain. For a week, we had come down to breakfast each morning, wondering why we wasted the precious days of idleness with the company gathered around the Jacobus board. What joy of human companionship was to be had out of Mrs. Tabb and Mrs. Guggenkamp, the two middle-aged gossips from Scranton, Pennsylvania, out of Mr. and Mrs. Biggle, an indurated head bookkeeper and his prim and censorious wife, out of old Major Halkett, a retired businessman who, having once sold a few shares on commission, wrote for circulars of every stock company that was started and tried to induce everyone to invest who would listen to him. We looked around at those dull faces, the truthful indices of mean and barren minds, and decided that we would leave that morning. Then we ate Mrs. Jacobus's biscuits, light as Aurora's cloudlets, drank her honest coffee, inhaled a perfume of the late azaleas with which she decked her table, and decided to postpone our departure one more day. And then we wandered out to take our morning glance at what we called our view. And it seemed to us as if Tab and Hoogenkamp and Halkett and the Biglises 
could not drive us away in a year. I was not surprised when, after breakfast, my wife invited the breeds to walk with us to our view. The Hoogenkamp, Biggle, Tab, Halkett, Contingent never stirred off Jacobus's veranda, but we both felt that the breeds would not profane that sacred scene. We strolled slowly across the fields, passed through the little belt of woods, and as I heard Mrs. Breed's little cry of startled rapture, I motioned to Breed to look up. By Jove, he cried, heavenly! We looked off from the brow of the mountain over fifteen miles of billowing green, to where, far across a far stretch of pale blue, lay a dim purple line that we knew was Staten Island. Towns and villages lay before us and under us, There were ridges and hills, uplands and lowlands, woods and plains, all massed and mingled in that great silent sea of sunlit green. For silent it was to us, standing in the silence of a high place, silent with a Sunday stillness that made us listen without taking thought, for the sound of bells coming up from the spires that rose above the treetops, the treetops that lay as far beneath us as the light clouds were above us that dropped great shadows upon our heads and faint specks of shade upon the broad sweep of land at the mountain's foot. And so, that is your view? asked Mrs. Breed after a moment. You are very generous to make it ours, too. Then we lay down on the grass, and Breed began to talk in a gentle voice, as if he felt the influence of the place. He had paddled a canoe in his earlier days, he said, and he knew every river and creek in that vast stretch of landscape. He found his landmarks and pointed out to us where the Passaic and the Hackensack flowed, invisible to us, hidden behind great ridges that on our sight were but combings of the green waves upon which we looked down. And yet on the further side of those broad ridges and rises were scores of villages, a little world of country life lying unseen under our eyes. A good deal like looking at humanity, he said. There is such a thing as getting so far above our fellow men that we see only one side of them. Ah, how much better was this sort of talk than the chatter and gossip of the Tab and the Hoogenkamp, than Major's dissertations upon his everlasting circulars. My wife and I exchanged glances. Now, when I went up the Matterhorn... Mr. Breed began. Why, dear, interrupted his wife, I didn't know you ever went up the Matterhorn. It it was five years ago, said Mr. Breed hurriedly. I, I didn't tell you. When I was on the other side, you know, it was rather dangerous. Well, as I was saying, it looked, oh, it didn't look at all like this. A cloud floated overhead, throwing its great shadow over the field where we lay. The shadow passed over the mountain's brow and reappeared far below, a rapidly decreasing blot flying eastward over the gold and green. My wife and I exchanged glances once more. Somehow, the shadow lingered over us all. As we went home, the breeds went side by side along the narrow path, and my wife and I walked together. Should you think, she asked me, that a man would climb the Matterhorn the very first year he was married? I don't know, my dear. I answered evasively. This isn't the first year I have been married, not by a good many, and I wouldn't climb it for a farm. You know what I mean, she said. I did. When we reached the boarding house, Mr. Jacobus took me aside. You know, he began his discourse, my wife, 
She used to live in New York. I didn't know, but I said, yes. She says the numbers on the streets runs crisscross-like. 34 is on one side of the street and 35 on to other. How's that? That is the invariable rule, I believe. Then, I say, these here new folk that you and your wife seem so mightily taken up with, do you know anything about them? I know nothing about the character of your borders, Mr. Jacobus, I replied, conscious of some irritability. If I choose to associate with any of them, just so, just so, broke in Jacobus, I hate nothing to say against your hospitality, but do you know them? Why, certainly not, I replied. Well, that was all I was asking ye. You see, when he came here to take the rooms, you wasn't here then. He told my wife that he lived at number 34 in his street. And yesterday, she told her that they lived at number 35. He said he lived in an apartment house. Now, there can't be no apartment house on two sides of the same street, can they? What street was it? I inquired warily. 121st Street. Maybe, I replied, still more warily. That's Harlem. Nobody knows what people will do in Harlem. I went up to my wife's room. Don't you think it's queer, she asked me. I think I'll have a talk with that young man tonight, I said, and see if he can give some account of himself. But, my dear, my wife said gravely, she doesn't know whether they've had the measles or not. Why, great Scott, I exclaimed. They must have had them when they were children. Please don't be stupid, said my wife. I meant their children. After dinner that night, or rather after supper, for we had had dinner in the middle of the day at Jacobus's, I walked down the long veranda to ask Breed, who was placidly smoking at the other end, to accompany me on a twilight stroll. Halfway down, I met Major, I met Major Halkett. That friend of yours, he said, indicating the unconscious figure at the further end of the house, seems to be a queer sort of guy. He told me that he was out of business and just looking round for a chance to invest his capital. And I've been telling him what an everlasting big show he had to take stock in the Capitoline Trust Company starts next month. Four million capital. I told you all about it. Oh, well, he says, let's wait and think about it. Wait, says I. The Capitoline Trust Company won't wait for you, my boy. This is letting you in on the ground floor, says I. And it's now or never. Oh, let it wait, says he. I don't know what's into that man. I don't know how well he knows his own business, Major, I said as I started again for Breed's end of the veranda. But I was troubled nonetheless. The Major could not have influenced the sale of one share of stock in the Capitoline Company. But that stock was a great investment, a rare chance for a purchaser with a few thousand dollars. Perhaps it was no more remarkable that Breed should not invest than I should not, and yet it seemed to add one circumstance more to the other suspicious circumstances. When I went upstairs that evening, I found my wife putting her hair to bed. I don't know how I can better describe an operation familiar to every married man. I waited until the last tress was coiled up, and then I spoke.
I've talked with Breed, I said, and I didn't have to catechize him. He seemed to feel that some sort of explanation was looked for, and he was very outspoken. You were right about the children. That is, I must have misunderstood him. There are only two. But the Matterhorn episode was simple enough. He didn't realize how dangerous it was until he had gone so far into it that he couldn't back out. And he didn't tell her because he'd left her here, you see, and under the circumstances, left her here, cried my wife. I've been sitting with her the whole afternoon, sewing, and she told me that he left her at Geneva and came back and took her to Bach, and the baby was born there. Now I'm sure, dear, because I asked her. Perhaps I was mistaken when I thought he said she was on this side of the water, I suggested with bitter, biting irony. You poor dear, did I abuse you, said my wife. But do you know, Mrs. Tabb said that she didn't know how many lumps of sugar he took in his coffee. Now that seems queer, doesn't it? It did. It was a small thing, but it looked queer, very queer. The next morning, it was clear that war was declared against the breeds. They came down to breakfast somewhat late, and as soon as they arrived, the Biglises swooped up the last fragments that remained on their plates and made a stately march out of the dining room. Then Miss Hugenkamp arose and departed, leaving a whole fishball on her plate, even as Atalanta might have dropped an apple behind her to tempt her pursuer to check his speed. So Miss Hugenkamp left that fishball behind her, and between her maiden self and contamination. We had finished our breakfast, my wife and I, before the breeds appeared. We talked it over and agreed that we were glad that we had not been obliged to take sides upon such insufficient testimony. After breakfast, it was the custom of the male half of the Jacobas household to go around the corner of the building and smoke their pipes and cigars where they would not annoy the ladies. We sat under a trellis covered with a grapevine that had borne no grapes in the memory of man. This vine, however, bore leaves, and these, on that pleasant summer morning, shielded us from two persons who were in earnest conversation in the struggling, half-dead flower garden at the side of the house. I don't want, we heard Mr. Jacobus say, to enter in no man's privacy, but I do want to know who it may be like that I have in my house. Now what I ask of you, and I don't want you to take it as in, in no ways personal, is have you your marriage license with you? No, we heard the voice of Mr. Breed reply. Have you yours? I think it was a chance shot, but it told all the same. The major, he was a widower, and Mr. Biggle and I looked at each other. And Mr. Jacobus, on the other side of the grape trellis, looked at I don't know what, and was as silent as we were. Where is your marriage license, married reader? Do you know? Four men, not including Mr. Breed, stood or sat on one side or the other of that grape trellis, and not one of them knew where his marriage license was. Each of us had had one. The major had had three. But where were they? Where is yours? Tucked in your best man's pocket? Deposited in his desk? Or washed to a pulp in his white waistcoat, if white waistcoats be the fashion of the hour? Washed out of existence? Can you tell where it is? 
Can you, unless you are one of those people who frame that interesting document and hang it upon their drawing room walls? Mr. Breed's voice arose after an awful stillness of what seemed like five minutes and was probably thirty seconds. Mr. Jacobus, will you make out your bill at once and let me pay it? I shall leave by the six o'clock train. And will you also send the wagon for my trunks? I hain't said I wanted ye to, to leave, began Mr. Jacobus. But Breed cut him short. Bring me your bill. But, remonstrated Jacobus, if ye ain't, bring me your bill, said Mr. Breed. My wife and I went out for a morning's walk, but it seemed to us when we looked at our view as if we could only see those invisible villages of which Breed had told us, that other side of the ridges and rises of which we catch no glimpse from lofty hills or from the heights of human self-esteem. We meant to stay out until the Breeds had taken their departure, but we returned just in time to see Pete, the worker, the blacker of boots, the brasher of coats, the general handyman of the house, loading the breed trunks onto the Jacobus wagon. And as we stepped upon the veranda, down came Mrs. Breed, leaning on Mr. Breed's arm as though she were ill, and it was clear that she had been crying. There were heavy rings about her pretty black eyes. My wife took a step toward her. Look at that dress, dear, she whispered. She never thought anything like this was going to happen when she put that on. It was a pretty delicate, dainty dress, a graceful, narrow-striped affair. Her hat was trimmed with a narrow-striped silk of the same colors, maroon and white, and in her hand she held a parasol that matched her dress. She's had a new dress on twice a day, said my wife, but that's the prettiest yet. Oh, somehow... I'm awfully sorry they're going. But going they were. They moved toward the steps. Mrs. Breed looked toward my wife, and my wife moved toward Mrs. Breed. But the ostracized woman, as though she felt the deep humiliation of her position, turned sharply away and opened her parasol to shield her eyes from the sun. A shower of rice, a half-pound shower of rice, fell down over her pretty hat and her pretty dress and fell in a battering circle on the floor, outlining her skirts, and there it lay in a broad, uneven band, bright in the morning sun. Mrs. Breed was in my wife's arms, sobbing as if her young heart would break. Oh, you poor, dear, silly children, my wife cried, as Mrs. Breed sobbed on her shoulder. Why didn't you tell us? We, we, we didn't want to be t t taken for for bridal couple, sobbed Mrs. Breed, and we d didn't dream what awful lies we'd have to tell, and all the awful mixed-up mess of it. Oh, dear, dear, dear. Pete, commanded Mr. Jacobus, put back them trunks. These folks stays here as long as they want to. Mr. Breed, he held out a large, hard hand. I'd order have known better, he said. And my last doubt of Mr. Breed vanished as he shook that grimy hand in manly fashion. The two women were walking off toward our view, each with an arm about the other's waist, touched by a sudden sisterhood of sympathy. Gentlemen, said Mr. Breed, addressing Jacobus, Biggle, the Major, and me, 
There is a hostelry down the street where they sell honest New Jersey beer. I recognize the obligations of the situation. We five men filed down the street. The two women went toward the pleasant slope where the sunlight gilded the forehead of the great hill. On Mr. Jacobus's veranda lay a spattered circle of shining grains of rice. Two of Mr. Jacobus's pigeons flew down and picked up the shining grains, making grateful noises far down in their throats. Continuing in my first novel, Winds of Wyoming, I'll be reading from Chapter 8. Kate walked outside to shake the feather duster. Sunshine poured through evergreen branches, weaving the tree's brisk scent into the morning air. A pair of chipmunks squeaked and scampered up a nearby tree. She could hear the toccata of a woodpecker in the distance. As she stood enjoying her first morning on a mountainside, a doe tiptoed into view, followed by two speckled fawns with black eyes and noses. Their legs were wobbly and unsteady. Kate hurried back into the cabin. Laura, come see the fawns. Laura, who'd just turned off the vacuum cleaner, peered out the window. Oh, my, aren't they beautiful? I've seen that sight dozens of times but it never fails to move me. God's creatures are so amazing, especially the babies. Mike appeared in the doorway. Now you know Lulabelle's little secret. That's her third set of twins. Laura lifted her chin. How do you know it's Lulabelle? Remember, she's a doe with a long scar on her left front leg. He turned to Kate. Probably tangled with barbed wire. He scanned her face. You feeling okay today? The clarity of his blue eyes startled her. I'm... She blinked and cleared her throat. <clears> throat> I, I'm a bit stiff, but the more I move around, the easier it gets. Good. That half grin again. Kate hoped he couldn't hear her heart pound. They watched Lulabelle and her little ones with their twitching tails nibble their way through the trees sometimes standing on hind legs to reach the higher branches. Mike asked, Any more problems with that guy? No. That's good. But he frowned. Just can't get over how he appeared out of nowhere, just before a guest season starts, and your first night in that cabin. Laura sighed. Oh, the timing is strange. I'll have to pray he doesn't come back. And stay alert. Mike eyed Kate, which means, yes, I know, she folded her arms. Call you or the sheriff if he comes back. Laura placed her hand on her son's shoulder. How's your leg? The same as it was at breakfast, Mom. It's bruised, that's all. She laughed. Sorry, I don't mean to pester you. She reached up to angle his black cowboy hat. Nice hat. I hope you don't mind. He touched the brim. Dad wore the same size, so I borrowed it until I get mine clean. She smiled. Keep it. You look good in it, just as handsome as your father. Kate, who could see color creeping from his neck to his cheeks, grinned at his discomfort. Where's your dog? Mike seemed relieved to talk about something else. 
He's in the doghouse, literally. He didn't come when I called him yesterday morning. She shrugged. Sounds like a typical dog to me. Yeah, he nodded. But obedience is important on a ranch. Laura chimed in. Tramp caused a lot of trouble yesterday, so Mike locked him in the dog run. We provide for our guests' dogs. Kate laid the feather duster on an end table. I bet he hates that. Actually, he didn't seem as upset as I expected. Mike had a wry smile on his face. He just laid down in the shade. We hiked a long way yesterday, so I figure he's tired. But Tramp loves having the run of this place. He'll get the message after a few hours in the pen. Kate flinched. The pen? Had she gotten the message after her time in the pen? Laura picked up the duster and flipped it through the, a spider web that clung between logs. Tramp hates to be separated from his master. He thinks he should go everywhere Mike goes. Mike wrapped an arm around her shoulders. Speaking of going places, I was just wondering, Mrs. D. Laura winked at Kate. When he calls me Mrs. D., I know he's got something up his sleeve. The tan skin at Mike's temples creased. This is important. Laura's eyes sparkled. Maybe I should be the judge of that. She obviously adored her son. Kate envied the easy affection they shared. Familial love was only a vague memory for her. I thought Kate might want to ride with me to check on the bison herd this afternoon. If you can spare her for a couple hours, that is. I need to get the current running through the fence again. Laura rolled her eyes. I should have known buffalo. She looked at Kate. Interested in going? I love it. I've only seen bison in pictures. Well, actually, when I drove through Nebraska on my way here, I saw a herd, but they were too far from the road to get a good look at them. Mike beamed like a first grader with a pet frog on show-and-tell day. Great. I'll meet you at the barn around two. I've got a couple things I need to do first. He turned to go, but Laura stopped him. Did Tara Hughes find you this morning? He scowled. No, what does she want? Her response was interrupted by the crackling of his radio. Bossman, you there? Mike retrieved the radio from his belt and showed his mom. I found Dad's in the storeroom. He punched the button. Clint, would you cut out the boss man bit? Yeah, sure. Hey, we've got a problem down here. I was riding fence at the bison pasture and came across a dead cow. Mike groaned. You positive she's dead? As positive as I am that the sun rises in the east. Could have been shot, but we can't be certain till we take a closer look. She's about 20 yards from the fence. I'll be right there. Mike replaced the radio, shaking his head. I don't get it. A sliced fence yesterday and a dead cow today. Is it just coincidence or... He turned to go. I better get down to the Battle Creek pasture. Wait. Laura grabbed his arm. Aren't you taking Kate with you? He looked at Kate. Sorry. Circumstances changed. You're welcome to ride along. Just can't guarantee what we'll find when we get there. I'd like to go, unless you think another time would be better. Why did her heart have to flip out every time he glanced her way? Laura patted his back. I think it would be nice for you to have someone to visit with on the way. Do you need to borrow my SUV? No, Rusty and I got old Blue running again last night. Kate had to ask, who or what is old Blue? Laura laughed. That's the name Dan gave his pickup. 
Mike had a little adventure with it yesterday. She winked. I'm sure he'll be glad to tell you all about it. Mike narrowed his eyes. Yeah, right. He motioned to Kate. We better get a move on. Clint is waiting. Switching to Mike's point of view. Mike opened the passenger door for Kate. The bottom half of it looked like it had been slugged by a giant fist. Kate touched the pickup's faded hood. So this is old blue. Yeah, the truck that keeps on trucking. It gained a few more dents and scrapes yesterday, plus a broken window and mirror on the driver's side. He stared at the glass that littered the vinyl bench seat. Not exactly the best time for a ride-along. Thank you, Mom. But the truth was, it was his idea to show off his bison to the new girl on the block. And this is what he got, rotten timing included. Using his hat rim, he swept the shards onto the floor of the truck. Better to stomp on glass than to sit on it. I'll clean up the mess later. He straightened, shaking slivers from the hat. I get the door for you, but the other side is jammed, which is crazy. You'd think the door that got hit would be the inoperable one. He plopped his hat on his head. Anyway, if you don't mind, I'll get in first, or I could crawl through the win- or, or I could crawl through the driver's side window. You don't need to do that. He got in and maneuvered behind the steering wheel. Kate followed, pulling the door shut. Mike started the engine. You can close the window if it's too windy for you. No, thanks. I like to smell the fresh air. Mike turned onto the same dirt road he'd driven and walked the day before. There's no window on this side, so raising years wouldn't make much difference anyway. He drove as fast as he dared, staring into the questions that swirled through his mind. Was it only yesterday he'd found the gap in the fence? What was going on? Who would shoot an animal in the middle of a fenced pasture? Why? And why a single cow? If it wasn't a gunshot, how did she die? But if someone did shoot the bison, would he have to prove wrongful or malicious intent to their insurance company? Should he take pictures? He hadn't brought a camera. Should he call the vet or the sheriff or both? He rubbed his chin and stared unseeing at the road. So many questions and their guest season hadn't even started. How would they get through the summer without Dad? He instinctively knew prayer was the key to the WP's survival. He also knew he had to handle the situation himself, with God's guidance. His mom had too much on her mind to think about dead bison. He reached for Tramp, but instead of stroking the furry back of his collie, he found himself patting a denim-clad thigh. Oh! He snatched his hand back as fast as if he touched a red-hot branding iron, nearly driving off the road. I'm sorry, I didn't, I, I... He steered back into the track. Kate grabbed the door handle. Heat blazed up his neck and into his ears. I forgot you, I mean, I... I forgot Tramp wasn't he... he uh, he's always with you, sitting where I'm sitting. Mike nodded and stared straight ahead, too embarrassed to try to explain further. But out of the corner of his eye, he saw her release her death grip on the handle. She turned his direction. I think it's nice you can take your dog wherever you go. He gave her a sideways glance. She was smiling, thank God. Yeah, he's a good dog. She snickered. Except for yesterday. He couldn't help but chuckle. Yeah, except for yesterday. He slowed the truck. I apologize for what just happened. I... Apology accepted. They exchanged smiles. When she looked out the window, Mike stole another look at his passenger. 
His heart beat a strange pattern in his chest. Beneath her bruises, she was really quite pretty, a brown-haired, brown-eyed beauty. And that smile. He shifted his hat back and scratched his head. How had he missed it before? Did he always walk around with his head in a hayloft? Maybe he wouldn't mind seeing her behind his dad's desk, after all. Her sunburnished hair swirled in the breeze, reminding him of an eddy in the creek and filling the cab with a coconut scent. Her dark eyes were soft, but guarded, like she suffered for caring too much. And there was something else about her, something raw and painful, that made him want to draw her close and tell her she could depend on him. He turned away. Where in the world did that come from? He'd proven years ago he wasn't dependable when it came to taking care of people. He cleared his throat. You have any pets in Pennsylvania? She wrapped a stray strand of hair behind her ear. He saw the red streaks on her palm, remembered her fall, and slowed the truck. We had a red and white cocker spaniel named Trudy who slept at the bottom of my bed every night. She loved to play, could chase balls and play tug-of-war for hours. Kate looked down at her hands. I never knew what happened to her. Did she run away? Kate stared out the side window. He lowered his voice. Did she get sick? She took a long breath. When she spoke, she spoke softly, gazing beyond him. Mike, who'd already turned off his radios, bent closer to hear her above the clanks and clinks of the pickup. My only sibling, Kenny, and both my parents were killed in a car accident when I was nine years old. They had dropped me off at my friend Cindy's house several blocks from ours. My mom told me they would pick me up on their way home from grocery shopping. Instead, Cindy's mom called me out from the playroom to their living room, where a policeman stood by the door. Years later, she clasped her hands. I learned from my great aunt that my dad survived long enough to tell officers where to find me. But when the cop saw me, he didn't say anything about my family. Just, get your coat, kid. You're coming with me. He was so big and gruff. Cindy's mom was crying, but she didn't say why. Just hugged me. That was the last I saw her or Cindy. And the last time I saw my house. The officer drove past it, but didn't stop. Nobody took me to the funerals. Nobody took me home to get my things. And nobody ever told me what happened to Trudy. Mike blew out a breath. No wonder she seemed so sad. What a bum deal. I had my dad into my adulthood. And I still have my mom. I've been feeling way too sorry for my... She interrupted. You need to feel sorry for yourself. I wasn't given an opportunity to grieve, just uprooted from everything familiar and thrown into a foster home. I don't remember staying anywhere long, and I don't remember their pets. I was probably afraid to love anyone, human or animal. She frowned. I didn't mean to remind you about your dad's death. That's okay. It's always good to realize other people have problems, too. If you don't mind me asking, why foster homes? Didn't you have any relatives you could live with? My great-aunt, Aunt Mary, who has multiple sclerosis, told me a few weeks ago she tried year after year to convince family services to let her be my guardian, but they always said she couldn't handle me due to her health. I was a difficult child, to put it mildly. He raised an eyebrow. I find that hard to believe. 
I was lost, confused, lonely, and angry, very angry. I'm still angry about my dad's death, Mike said, and about, well, no need bringing up Matt. Anyway, I was old enough to understand the situation. I watched Dad die, and I got to say goodbye. I'm sorry the supposed experts were so callous toward you. Well, I hear the agency does a better job these days with orphan children. She smiled. At least I have happy memories of my family to carry with me through life. She shifted in her seat, then gave him a sideways glance. Speaking of memories, what kind of adventure did you and your dog have yesterday? He chuckled. Ha! You snuck that one in the back door. Slowing old blue, he parked behind Clint's pickup on the shoulder of the road. But lucky for me, we have arrived at our destination. He assumed an exaggerated drawl. The infamous bison versus old blue standoff. Happen right here at the OK Corral. I'll tell you all about it one of these days. Back to our quiz. Which sentence comes from one of Charles Dickens' writings? Was it? Something or other lay in wait for him. Amid the twists and the turns of the months and the years like a crouching beast in the jungle. Or was it? It was one of those March days when the sun shines hot and the wind blows cold, when it is summer in the light and winter in the shade. Or was it? He could not, I reflected, be so weak as not to see that the most intricate and remote recess of his hotel would be as open as his commonest closets to the eyes to the probes, to the gimlets, and to the microscopes of the prefect. Well, which was it? (laughs) It was the middle one. It was one of those March days when the sun shines hot and the wind blows cold, when it is summer in the light and winter in the shade. That's Charles Dickens from Great Expectations. The first one was Henry James, The Beast in the Jungle, And the last one was Edgar Allan Poe, The Purloined Letter. That is going to take us out tonight. Glad you were with us. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon best-selling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.